Working Class Heroes Radio, a show by working people about working people in New York City. My name is Carlos Perez. And I'm Johnny Guzman. Carlos and I are your hosts this week for the second episode of our series, Coronavirus and Class War. This week, our correspondent, Lupita Romero, will be talking with Isabel Barter about mutual aid efforts to reduce personal protective equipment for frontline workers. Isabel is a volunteer with Medics and Makers. She's been producing and distributing masks and face shields to essential workers in Oregon and all across the country. Why is there a shortage of personal protective equipment? Let's pass it over to Lupita for the rest of the story. On March 4th, the Department of Health and Human Services confirmed that the United States has only 1% of the N95 respirator masks that would be needed if the number of coronavirus infections reached pandemic levels. N95 respirator masks are a crucial part of the personal protective equipment known as PPE that healthcare workers need to protect themselves from the virus. So now put this into perspective, okay? You have an anesthesiologist who went to school for 10 years to become an anesthesiologist. She is literally the most important person in the building at her hospital. And she is wearing a crowdfunded, homemade protective, uh, protective shield to intubate patients who are dying of COVID-19. That's, that is the epitome of the American healthcare system. That was Isabel Barter, our guest for this week's episode, Medics, Makers, and Mutual Aid. Isabel is a web developer living in Portland, Oregon. She has also worked as an emergency medical technician and for UPS and other logistics companies, and she has been an activist for many years. Towards the end of the interview, she'll talk about some of her political experiences, including her time as a street medic in 2017 at the Standing Rock encampment that indigenous people organized to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. As the pandemic spread, Isabel knew from working both in ambulances and delivery trucks that the United States imports most of its PPE supply and did not have a robust national stockpile, nor the infrastructure to produce and deliver it quickly. Healthcare workers in major cities are reporting shortages of equipment and high infection rates among staff. They have organized protests to demand increased production of PPE for hospitals who are rationing and reusing supplies. Isabel Barter is one of many volunteers who have worked tirelessly to address this crisis. After this short break, she'll talk about why and how she got organized in her community and together began using commercial 3D printers to make PPE for hundreds of frontline workers. As someone who like stepped in to make protective uh, equipment for people um, and fill in that shortage, what is your understanding of it? What we are seeing, so I'm, I'm part of a group that's 3D printing personal protective equipment. And we have a, a group in the Pacific Northwest called the Pacific Northwest PPE Makers uh, Alliance. And 
we have uh, an intake form for medical facilities. And we've been told by EMS, long-term care facilities, you know, facilities for like assisted living facilities and stuff like that, that, that it's like impossible for them to get PPE right now. I had a battalion chief who is a, uh, in a local fire department tell me that uh, they would have to spend their entire year's budget on PPE this month to be able to keep up uh, with what they use. So not only have the prices gone up, but the cases have gone up and the level of PPE that's needed has gone up. So you might only have an infectious disease call on an ambulance once every you know week or two maybe. And now you have to treat every single call as if it's an infectious disease call. Doctors and nurses right now uh, are being given two N95 respirators, four surgical masks, and one face shield, which is which all of those are meant to be worn for about 10, 15 minutes a piece. And that's what they get for a week. And so for us in the maker community, we're thinking, okay, first off, we're a stopgap, right? What should be happening is that Coca-Cola should be taking all of the plastic meant for their two liter bottles, and they should be sending that to somewhere that makes foam and making millions and millions of single-use face masks to be sent out to medical com- to um, hospitals and medical centers. They should be making those by the millions per day, but they're not. So we need to come up. What what we decided was we needed to come up with a reusable a reusable option. When you three D print anything, you you end up with a, a basically a plastic structure. Mm-hmm. which can be sanitized in various ways uh, and then reused. How did you personally first put two and two together of like, oh my God, this is all unfolding in this way. And yeah. like, wait, I have a 3D printer right here. Yeah. Um, I, I just saw a file on the internet and I started printing it. I, I don't know. I just kind of jumped into action, I guess. Um, and then I found um, through a friend of a friend, I found another person who has a CNC machine and he was making face shields. Um, And so he was cutting the plastic, like the, basically the plastic shield part that goes over. And we started a group uh, called the Pacific Northwest Medic and Medics and Makers. And yeah, I mean, we just started making shields between the two of us alone. um, um, And then some of the other people who were in that original uh, medics and makers group, we've already supplied, I want to say somewhere around like 700 face shields, um, mostly to local hospitals and to um, emergency medical services, uh, some long-term care facilities, things like that. So hospitals are accepting them? There's a hospital in central Oregon that was looking at using these masks the 3D printed masks. And when the medical director was asked what he thought it would take to get them approved, he like laughed about it and was like 18 months. Like, because that's what it normally takes to get something approved by the FDA and then get it manufactured in a, in a um, NIOSH, uh, um, like out of NIOSH uh, tested materials and FDA approval, like FDA approved, uh, facility and things like that. When we first started, no hospitals were taking them. None of them wanted them. So we were providing them for long-term care facilities, nursing homes, things like that. Now all of them want them. We are supposed to provide an order for a thousand of these on Monday. Um, 
yeah, the, from the larger group. In the larger group, right now we have 109 3D printers. And I think something like 80 or so volunteers. And where did you get the, the file from for printing? Uh, so there is a larger group on Facebook called Open Source COVID-19 Medical Supplies. Mm. And that group has spawned smaller groups. So the group that I'm a part of now started as the Pacific Northwest Open Source COVID Medical Supplies. Um, and so basically we would just share information on that forum essentially on that Facebook group and people would put it through various different types of tests and then share the results. And so it was just like a mad dash of peer review essentially. And through that, a number of files that had been approved by medical centers in, in certain areas or made by more established 3d printing uh, firms were sort of, sort of bubbled up to the top. So there's a design by Prusa and Prusa is a 3D printing manufacturer, which worked with the Ministry of Health in the Czech Republic, which is where they're located. Um, and they rapidly went through like three or four uh, versions of a face mask, a 3D printed face mask. And now they're making a thousand of them a day. Um, just that company is making a thousand of them a day. And so most people I would say are probably using that Prusa design. Then there are, but that Prusa design can take usually around two hours to print. Um, and so there's another design that was made by a Swedish engineer, which is basically a hole punch uh, design. And it's much, much thinner, much, much faster to print. Those print usually in about half an hour to 45 minutes. That's what I started printing. There, um, it's kind of a quantity quality sort of thing. So those are like lower quality, higher quantity. I can print probably 70 to 80 of, 80 of them a, a day alone. And they're meant to be for multi-use. Yeah, they're still multi-use. Um, they're as durable as a pair of eyeglasses, essentially. Um, you know, so they're not indestructible uh, like some of the other models, which take a lot longer to print. But but they they work and they're approved by the Swedish um, the Swedish Ministry of Health. So it's a lot of that. It's a lot of. Uh, I mean, it's very DIY, right? So you know, one design might be approved by one hospital in Florida. And then you bring that design to a hospital in Maryland and they're like, absolutely not. We would never. And then a week later, that hospital in Maryland is like, okay, you know, that thing you brought us a week ago, we want 500 of them tomorrow. Who are the people who are part of this operation? What do they do for work? Is, is sure. there overlap for them in this? Yeah, definitely. There's overlap. I would say probably three quarters of us are tech workers. Uh, there's several of us who are medical workers. Most of us, I would say, though, are software developers, engineers of one sort or other. I'm really curious as to what your roommates thought about all of this, because I, I remember seeing a picture of your layout. <laughs> and it definitely looks like um, a, a factory room. <laughs> yeah, it is. Has the, has the actual laying out of, of imprinting of this been sustainable for you inside of the house? Yeah, so here's, here's a, a working class story from COVID-19. Uh, I have two roommates, and we work eight-hour shifts to keep the 3D printers running 24-7. So one of us stays up all night long with the printers, pulling off print jobs when they finish, starting new ones, uh, handling any problems that occur. And then another one of us takes over, and he works 
you know, a regular uh, day job while babysitting the printers. And then I take over. Um, and yeah, we are, we're essentially a factory. And the, the thing is, we all know how to do that because we're working class people. So, you know, there's no confusion about what happens next. Right, so, figure out a system. Exactly, figure out a system, make it reproducible, make it work. You are listening to Working Class Heroes on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're talking to Isabel Barter, a healthcare and tech worker who has been printing and distributing personal protective equipment to hospitals to help address a massive shortage of supplies in the country. Let's get back to it. Destination didn't change, just a better view. Matter with the stop, getting off, selling servitude. Give them everything, and this is what we're getting. Like a spoiled little teenager with no appreciation. America, yeah, it's time we cut her off. Like watching our baby fall when teaching them how to walk. How long do you think you'll be printing for? Our group had a meeting today of the, the folks of us who are sort of administrating things. And we said the same thing in that meeting that we've said at all of our previous meetings. We hope that we stop tomorrow. We've been waiting for industry now for three weeks and they have not stepped up. We've heard rumors that Nike is going to make aerosol boxes, which are the basically plexiglass, plexiglass boxes that uh, you put over a patient with COVID-19 when you need to intubate them. So they have a place for your gloves to go, like your hands to go into basically a glove um, into gloves that are attached to it. And then you intubate the patient through, through a plexiglass screen, right? That way you don't need as invasive, um, you don't need to put on like a, a full PPE, you just put on an N95 respirator and then you can intubate a patient because you're never coming in contact with them, right? Nike was supposed to make those, I haven't seen them. Uh, Intel, HP, um, and yeah, like what I was saying before about Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola was meant to do this already. They haven't. Um, all of these companies, we keep hearing rumors from people inside the companies where these companies are saying how much of this PPE they could produce. But when it comes to seeing it actually show up at the hospitals, I haven't seen any of it yet. What we are seeing is small businesses, which are losing uh, sometimes 50% of their business they are stepping up and they're not just stepping up and selling equipment to hospitals. They're stepping up and paying for it out of their own pocket and donating PPE that they're changed. They're retooling their entire operation uh, to make this PPE and they're donating it. And so we have a number of people, a number of uh, like small businesses and medium businesses who are manufacturing businesses uh, who have retooled. And they're making masks, like hand-sewn masks. Um, they're making uh, the sheets that I was talking about, like the, the essentially the plastic shield that goes around our 3D printed frames. We're seeing a lot of people step up who are either like independent producers or just like regular Joe working class people 
uh, step up and we're seeing basically none of these corporations step up. My house, uh, is, we're fronting all of it out of our own pocket. There is a GoFundMe, folks sh should feel free to donate. We've probably put $1,000 into this so far in buying equipment and buying the materials and stuff. It's all just out of our own pocket because at the end of the day, if I get sick and I go to my local hospital, I would much rather see them using a 3D printed face mask and a 3D printed face shield than using nothing at all. It's not the best manufacturing. You know, it's incredibly slow. That's the, that's the one drawback. One of the masks takes three to six hours. One of the face shields, two hours a piece. It's a hell of a lot better than nothing. But I want, I want nothing more than to hear an injection molder, you know, an injection molding company is going to make 250 silicone face masks every day. So we don't have to anymore. I want nothing more to hear that, but I just, just haven't. Isn't happening. It's not yeah. happening. It's, it's all just independent producers who are now coming together in collectives and, you know, having intake forms and, uh, and literally driving, driving equipment, driving PPE to the hospitals and dropping it off. That is truly the epitome of neoliberal U.S. Look, we are GoFunding this entire Yeah, yeah. We, I, I just want to put this into perspective. Anesthesiologists are on the front line of COVID-19 and, and not a lot of people uh, that, that doesn't, it's not like common sense that that might be the case, but anesthesiologists are absolute experts in ventilation. So, um, so they are on the front lines. An anesthesiologist in a local hospital, a major hospital, uh, reached out to us and asked us for uh, face masks. So now put this into perspective, okay? You have an anesthesiologist who went to school for 10 years to become an anesthesiologist. She is literally the most important person in the building at her hospital. And she is wearing a crowdfunded, homemade protective, uh, protective shield to intubate patients who are dying of COVID-19. That is the epitome of the American healthcare system. I've known you to be a street medic. Mm -hmm. um, I know that you were down in Standing Rock um, helping out as well as the street medic and that you're largely driven by the politics of mutual aid um, that I think yeah. um, comes with that. Can you just talk to me a little bit about that? You know, what, what mutual aid kind of means for you and how what your trajectory doing all these different things and responding to these different crises yeah. sort of taught you. I was an EMT for three years and I take, uh, I've taken my medical experience from working on an ambulance for three years to uh, working in the movement and being a street medic. I was, I worked with the medic, medics and healers at Standing Rock. I'm a street medic here in Portland as well now. I see a very strong connection to the mutual aid groups that are popping up all over the country, like we have here in Portland, like you have in New York, and Standing Rock. I mean, when I went to Standing Rock, we had universal healthcare. There was a hospital, another medical center. There were 20 kitchens. There was, uh, you know, a place to sleep that was warm if you, if you got snowed out or whatever. Um, and we had a unified goal, and that was to stop the pipeline. But that takes a lot of support, community support, you know, it takes medics, it takes cooks, it takes, um, 
you know, builders. Um, and so I've seen glimpses of what society could look like if it was based around human need. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is another glimpse of that. COVID-19 and the mutual aid uh, groups that have popped up, even the way our federal government is responding, like resisting it tooth and nails. But, uh, you know, there's been talk in the U.S. Senate about universal health care as an emergency measure to, uh, to stop COVID-19. And I'm like, well, yeah, duh, right? You know, uh, and so I think that we're going to come out of this with a, with a radically different society, I think for the better, and hopefully a society that understands that an economy based on profit is incapable of handling a catastrophe like this. Um, we, we absolutely need Medicare for all. We absolutely need reusable equipment and to get rid of the, the economy that we have, both in the logistics, the way we handle logistics, and also the way we handle funding and supplying our hospitals. Yeah, I mean, it's a heroic effort, but it's one that, that never should have existed. Uh, it's like a volunteer fire department putting out an arson case. Yeah. I mean, this is arson. This is medical arson. I interviewed Isabel Barter on April 1st as the two groups that she's a part of, the Pacific Northwest Medics and Makers and Medic Force, were gearing up to fulfill their largest orders of PPE yet. Almost a month since then, public officials have announced that the national stockpile of PPE is almost depleted. Trump has called on companies to shift towards PPE production. However, he has resisted calls to enact and enforce the Defense Production Act, which would give the federal government authority to mandate and distribute mass-produced PPE from big corporations. To this day, only two companies, General Motors and Philips, have been ordered under the DPA to start PPE production. In the meantime, mutual aid groups continue to fundraise, organize, and keep their printers running to protect as many frontline workers as possible. I'm Lupita Romero, your correspondent. Thank you so much for listening. That's our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the efforts of Isabel and other mutual aid groups producing PPE for frontline workers, please head over to our website to donate to their GoFundMe and learn more about their project. If you have a story of your own or know someone who does about either mutual aid organizing or issues regarding access to PPE, give us a call at 929 3520134. Leave a name, a phone number, and we'll get back to you. Again, that number is 929-352-0134. Coronavirus and class war will continue next Thursday at 7.30 p.m. here at WBAI 99.5 FM, New York City's main source of community radio. 
You can support the station by becoming a BAI buddy at WBAI.org. Next week, we'll begin a series of episodes focusing on housing issues during this pandemic, starting with an interview by Julian Guerrero with Manny Pardilla, a tenant organizer in the Bronx. If you missed our last show, head over to WCHradio.org to catch up. While you're there, fill out the workers' inquiry. We want to hear from working-class New Yorkers about what your employer is or isn't doing to protect you and your coworkers. Again, the website is wchradio.org. Let's continue this conversation on Twitter. Follow us at WCHpod. Stay safe, stay healthy, New York, and as always, in solidarity. <laughs>